This is a lecture I always look forward to using. Harley spent a few minutes talking about uh, Joe Kuzel. Joe was the former associate director here uh, in the 1980s and 90s. Um, in the early 1990s, he was appointed uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, and played a role in the creation of what has become sort of the post-Cold uh, War Europe, especially in, in Southeast Europe. Joe was a very popular professor here at Ohio State. Uh, he had come here from Duke, where he'd also been a popular professor. And one of the things he cared most about was trying to get Ohio State students and graduate students and faculty alike to play a role in Washington, to play a role in the real world the way uh, he was inclined to do. And so um, I've dedicated this seminar series, uh, which is now in its eighth year, uh, to his memory. In 1995, he was part of a mission led by Richard Holbrook on its way to Sarajevo, uh, trying to bring an end to the war uh, in the Balkans at the time, when his armored personnel carrier went down a hill and he died, along with two other people in the, in the armored personnel carrier. And <clears throat> so consequently, we lost him when he was barely uh, 50 years old. Uh, so Joe, uh, Joe's notion was that we should have, uh, well, my notion was in Joe's honor, we should have a, a series of people who were like Joe, people who played a very important role in the government and could come with authority and some perspective on how knowledge is used in the government to make policy decisions, but who also had a very a distinguished career as an academic and publisher. And we have that today. I'm going to let uh, my former student and friend Zach Mears make the formal introduction. Zach was a PhD student here. Uh, I've forgotten what year he started. <laughs> yeah, my hair is getting gray. Uh, and maybe I instilled in Zach some small measure of interest in uh, government service as well as academy. Felt bad about that because he was one of the very best graduate students I ever had. Uh, and it could have made a great career in the academy, but decided to go instead to Washington. Uh, where he's still working currently in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, I guess. Uh, in any way, um, Zach is um, always welcome here at Ohio State and has agreed to serve as a Mershon Fellow and will help us from now on to make more networks uh, into Washington as he continues to build his career there. So without further ado, Zach Mears. You didn't come here for me, so this will be brief. Uh, but thanks, Rick, for the introduction, and thank you all for coming. Um, as Rick mentioned, you know, part of my relationship with Prashan is, is hopefully going to be able to bridge the gap between Columbus and D.C. And, and for those that were out earlier this month, uh, Andrew Rexham gave a talk on the future of U.S. efforts in Afghanistan in, in, in 2011. Uh, and then coming in April, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Robert Butler will give a keynote address at the Cybersecurity Symposium. Um, so, again, these are part of the efforts to help bridge the gap between Columbus and, and Washington and, and try to bring some, some of the policy, current policymakers and experts uh, to Columbus to get your all's feedback and insight. Um, but perhaps the, the gem of this year's talks uh, is a talk today by Dr. Ted Warner on uh, both recent and future arms control negotiations with, with Russia. Um, but it's, it's important for other reasons. Uh, Ted had the, both the, the benefit and, and luxury of having known and worked with, with Joe Cruzel 
uh, during the Clinton administration in the 90s. Uh, both are Air Force Academy graduates. Uh, both are experts on Russian defense and arms control policy. Uh, both have worked on arms control negotiations. Uh, Joe uh, serving on the delegation to SALT One, and Ted being the deputy head of the current negotiation uh, for New START with the Russian Federation. Um, <coughs> For much of the past two years, Ted has, has served as, as the deputy head, uh, leading the negotiations from the defense perspective, making sure that uh, the treaty always was informed of the national defense interests that were at stake for the United States, um, and also helping to outline an effective and tailored uh, um, inspections framework for the treaty, uh, all of which, uh, thankfully, uh, came to fruition in, in, in when the treaty was passed in December of this last year. Uh, in addition to his work on New Start, uh, Ted, over the last 30 years, has had an influence across an array of policy areas for the department, uh, having been responsible for department policy on arms control, uh, cooperative threat reduction, uh, countering the proliferation of nuclear weapons, among others. Um, and Ted has also taught graduate-level courses in Soviet and Russian defense and arms control policy at Princeton, Columbia, and George Washington Universities. Um, so I think it's, it's quite plain that Tez is an authoritative uh, speaker on these issues, and we're very fortunate to have him here today at Mershon. So please, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Dr. Ted Warner. Thank you very much. Uh, when I was asked by Zach a few months ago uh, for the to possibly uh, present this talk, uh, in memory of Joe Krusel, I was very happy to do so. I am very happy to do so. I did know Joe. Um, he's got one thing wrong about my background because I was a turncoat early in life. I went to the United States Naval Academy, but but took my commission in the Air Force and uh, and then taught at the Air Force Academy. And the first time I met Joe Krusel, he had just graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1967, and I had just reported as a uh, a young buck instructor captain who had finished graduate school at Princeton and had come to teach in the political science department. And Joe was uh, awaiting going off to a master's program at Harvard. And he uh, gave us a, a talk to a bunch of new instructors uh, about the honor code at, at the Air Force Academy. The next time I ran into Joe, uh, tells me a little bit, I, I hesitate to say this because I'm, uh, for one part of me, I'm on enemy ground here. Uh, I was born in Detroit and raised in East Lansing, but, <laughs> but my loyalties are in Ann Arbor. Uh, and that, uh, them's fighting words. Uh, I remember better days. I remember Bo and Woody, and it used to be at least a, we had a sort of 50-50 chance of winning. Even Lloyd Carr did pretty well. Mr. Rodriguez uh, did less well. And uh, Coach Tressel has been all too successful from the standpoint of those of, of us who root for the blue. Uh, but in any case, I came here and came to Mershon at one point when Joe was here in the latter part of the 80s. It may have been the early 90s. I don't have the exact uh, date. Uh, and Joe and I were both great uh, fans of golf, and so he took me out to the Scarlet Course, and we were out playing. 
And lo and behold, it turned out that day there was some sort of outing by the Ohio State football players, past and present. And these behemoths were moving around the course in their, in the, uh, in their carts, as I remember. And the only thing that I was thankful for is that I had a Michigan baseball cap, but I wasn't wearing it that day. I think it may have saved my life. Um, I'd like to talk to you today uh, a bit about uh, strategic arms control. Uh, and strategic nuclear deterrence between the United States and the Soviet Union and now the United States and the Russian Federation. Um, I'm, the deterrence we're talking about in this case is, of course, the deterrence that has uh, prevailed between our two countries uh, since the mid-1950s. Uh, deterrence and stability based on mutual vulnerability on the fact that both sides have so-called secure second strike capabilities uh, and neither is tempted to take recourse to the use of nuclear weapons uh, because it was clear that were that to occur, uh, really in a sense both would go down in flames. That uh, deterrent stalemate, if you will, began to emerge in the mid-1950s. It was the conscious policy of both governments throughout the Cold War as long as the Soviet Union existed until late 1991 uh, and of the United States to sort of perpetuate uh, this as the best answer to the avoidance of nuclear conflict between these two adversaries. Now for over 20 years uh, of course we've had well, almost 20 years now uh, there has not been a Soviet Union anymore but there's been a Russian Federation and our relations with them are considerably better than they were at the, at the, throughout the Cold War and the bad old times of the Cold War. But they still, there is a, certainly a substantial degree of distrust between us. So even as I negotiated with a, with a group of up to 50 or 60 other Americans against a similarly sized Russian delegation on the New START Treaty, which I'll speak to in just a few minutes, uh, as we did that, um, there was there's still s- sufficient legacy of the uh, the adversarial relationship between the two countries uh, that both sides still worry about sustaining nuclear deterrence, uh, that assured second strike, that mutual deterrence stalemate, uh, where both can devastate the other sometimes characterized as mutual assured destruction or a mad policy. Uh, But that has been the reality. Now, beginning in the late 1960s, even as our competitive and adversarial relationships with the Soviet Union were very prominent, the two countries began to try to wrestle with the problem of first limiting uh, the strategic nuclear arms race and then ratcheting it downward. And this was the process of first strategic arms limitation and then under President Reagan renamed and redirected in a a very important way to strategic arms reduction. So we had the SALT talks and then the START talks and we had a series of agreements. It is noteworthy that Joe Krusel, as a young lieutenant after finishing his master's degree at Harvard Uh, had connections. We talked earlier with some of the students that are here. I don't know what those connections were, but they sure paid off for him. Uh, He ended up on the delegation to that original set of talks, the SALT-1 talks, 
that were held alternatively in Helsinki and Vienna and yielded an agreement on offensive arms and a treaty limiting anti-ballistic missile defenses, the ABM Treaty, uh, both signed in 1972 and ratified by the Senate. So Joe also had a, had a common piece of, of that history. Um, SALT yielded a set of agreements. Sometimes they got ratified, sometimes they didn't. SALT 1 was ratified and entered into force. SALT 2 was, a, was agreed in 1979, but came a cropper. Had opposition in the Senate, substantial opposition in the Senate for ratification, but it was withdrawn from consideration after the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. So it was never brought to a vote. Uh, in the Reagan era, uh, President Reagan had trouble finding counterparts to talk to given the decrepit state of Soviet leadership in the opening part of the 80s uh, as uh, Brezhnev was dying, followed by Andropov, followed by Chernyenka. But when Gorbachev emerged, he did find a counterpart and a whole series of negotiations were begun, one on intermediate-range nuclear forces that led to a treaty in 1987 and then a treaty uh, on strategic arms reduction, the START-1 treaty, one of them which was signed in the summer of 1991, START-1, and a second treaty signed literally days before, uh, now it was into the Bush administration, Bush-1, there's now signing of those treaties, at the very tail end of the Bush administration when they had already lost the election the previous November, they signed the START-2 treaty. START 1 was eventually ratified in December of 1994. It had to be adjusted to make up for the breakup of the Soviet Union. It became a treaty with more than the two nations, the Soviet Union and the United States. On the Soviet side, it became a treaty with Russia predominantly, but also with Belarus and Ukraine, or Belarus, Ukraine and Kazakhstan, all of whom, whom had some of the legacy of the old Soviet long-range systems. Uh, the START II treaty was eventually ratified, but couldn't enter into force because in the process of ratification, the two different uh, parliamentary bodies, the U.S. Senate on one hand and the Federation Council and Duma in Russia on the other hand, put some conditions into ratification that were incompatible. And so that treaty never entered into force. Uh, Bush number two... Uh, negotiated a treaty in, in 2002 called the Moscow or Sort Treaty, uh, and it is it was to run until 2012, from 2002 to 2012. It has now been superseded by the new START Treaty. Um, in those treaties, let's let's talk a little bit about. Uh, I talked about mutual assured destruction, the mutual deterrence. By the end of the 1980s, to get a sense of, of how the arms race had proceeded, uh, both the Soviet Union and the United States had between 11 and 12,000 weapons, central strategic weapons, weapons that could be delivered by intercontinental range ballistic missiles, ICBMs, submarine launched ballistic missiles, SLBMs, or by heavy bombers. In addition, both sides had... I don't know, 20,000 weapons each of a tactical variety. So the legacy of the Cold War and the buildup of the nuclear arsenals of the two sides was truly stupendous. I mean, it was tens of thousands of weapons. 
under the START Treaty, START 1 Treaty, signed in 91, ratified in December of 94, that number was ratcheted down on the Central Strategic from the 11 to 12,000 to 6,000. There were some counting rules in there that weren't sort of one for one. So 6,000 was really probably closer to 6,500 to 7,000 real weapons. But that was a, a, a significant step downward. There was also a limit on the number of delivery vehicles, the ICBMs, the SLBMs, uh, and the heavy bombers. Both sides probably had over 2,000 delivery vehicles. And under the START-1 treaty, they came down to 1,600. So we're going from 11 to 12,000 to 6,000, and from over 2,000 down to 1,600. In the START II treaty that never entered into force, nevertheless you could get a sense of where it was agreed and even ratified, uh, those numbers of total weapons came down to 3,000 to 3,500. So now we're getting down to about a fourth of the number. And the number of delivery vehicles uh, was... Uh, I. I honestly don't remember what that number was. My guess is it came from 1,600 down to 1,200 or maybe even 1,000. And when George Bush II signed uh, a treaty in 2002, they ratcheted the weapons number now down to 1,700 to 2,200. So again, a very dramatic decline over about a 15-year period from the 11 to 12,000. There was no limit on delivery vehicles. The Moscow Treaty is a very strange treaty for most of us. Uh, it's like two pages long. Uh, it wrote on the back of the START Treaty. The START Treaty, START 1 Treaty, was still in force. START 1 Treaty had a period of 15 years, ratified in December of 04, so it was to run to December of 09. In that treaty, it's not, the treaty, by the way, isn't only about numbers. The numbers of the central ceilings are, are at the guts of the ratcheting down of the arms race. But the key part, particularly of the START One treaty, was its provisions for verification. How does each side go about verifying that the other side is complying with the limits of the treaty? In the SALT treaty, of the 1970s, 72, 79, the only thing available to observe compliance was what was called national technical means. That's a euphemism for your intelligence systems, particularly satellite-borne intelligence systems, imagery satellites, signals intelligence satellites, any way that you could collect information. And in those treaties, one of the important things was an agreement not to, to interfere with the national technical means of the other. didn't say you had to help them out, but it said that you would not try to blind them or do anything to uh, make them incapable of collecting information. So verification for the first few decades was non-interference with your independent intelligence systems, particularly your technical intelligence systems. In the START One Treaty, which was pioneered really by stuff that went in the INF, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, just a couple of years or fewer years before it, they introduced the idea of comprehensive databases, notifications, and most of all, on-site inspections. I had the opportunity during my Air Force career, I served in the Air Force for 20 years, I had the opportunity in 1976 to 78 
to be an uh, assistant air attaché in Moscow and to travel around the country a great deal trying to learn what we could basically from open observation. I saw a lot of 10-foot fences, let me tell you. We went to lots of cities and saw antennas on the roof of the military district headquarters and a lot of fences and not a lot more. And it was truly amazing to me that we came to the point in the late 1980s that in this arms control venture, we added on-site inspection. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about this because it's this very same system that we perpetuated, updated in some senses, in the new START Treaty. Uh, The question of a comprehensive database. Uh, Both sides are compelled at the very outset of the treaty to provide a comprehensive listing of all of the strategic offensive arms subject to limitation, the ICBMs, the SLBMs, the heavy bombers, where they're located, how many of them there are. And this comprehensive database is maintained, and then every six months it has to be updated. So if systems are retired, then they can fall off the list, and there are processes for conversion or elimination. That is how, at the end of the life cycle, they get, they get out of the purview of the treaty. There were also ways in which they were introduced into the treaty. As they came in new, they would have to be listed for the first time with their location, with the number, and so forth. And in these on-site inspections, uh, so this is the database, then there are notifications when when they move from one place to another, when they change status, and finally there are the on-site challenge inspections. And that was truly a revolutionary development. The inspection teams uh, consist of 10 individuals. Uh, They come with relatively short notice. They provide notice to the other side uh, in the 16 to 20 hours before they are to arrive at either the east or west half of the two countries. There are ports of entry that inspectors come into. So you send notice. An inspection team is coming. They don't tell you yet where they're going to inspect. They said they're coming into Moscow, they're coming into Ulan-Uday in the Siberia, they're coming to Washington, D.C., they're coming to San Francisco. They are met by a host escort team, and under the New START Treaty, within four hours after arrival, they designate the base to be inspected. As soon as they designate that base to be inspected, within one hour, all activity relevant to the things to be inspected must cease. There's a freeze in place. They must be transported to that base within a 24-hour period, and then they undertake their inspection. The most intriguing part of that inspection uh, is when you go to a missile base. You go to a submarine base where these massive submarines are located, each of them carrying, oh, 16 to 24 missiles. Uh, you go to that base, you are briefed in by the, uh, by the, the local uh, base uh, commander and his staff. You, there are certain things you have to be briefed on, including with diagrams and so forth about all the forces that are present at that base. And you get to designate one missile that, you are, that, that then you have a small team go out and observe that missile to make sure nothing untoward is done with the missile before you get to inspect it. 
and you get to go out to that missile, have it withdrawn from its tube, from its launcher, and you get to and they crack open the front end and you count the number of warheads located on the front end. This is a random sampling. You're not getting to go and see all of the missiles at the base, but when you arrive, they don't know which one you're going to look at. And on the average in Russia, there's probably about 30 missiles, and you're going to see one out of 30. You get to go to see one empty launcher as well, if it's been designated as empty. And under the New START Treaty in the same inspection, you get to inspect any of the non-deployed missiles. In ICBM fields, ICBMs today for, for fixed ICBMs are all located in, in hardened silos sunk into the ground uh, with steel and concrete designed in order to make it very difficult to destroy that silo unless you have a very direct hit, even with a nuclear weapon. Uh, the Russians have mobile ICBMs. Uh, that are on mobile erector launchers that go up into a vertical position and can launch the ICBM that go out in the field. In any case, there's lots of details about all this. But there in the, ninth, in the late 1980s, under the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty and then the START-1 Treaty, we pioneered this idea uh, of inspections. And those inspections were not included in that Moscow Treaty, but it was, it was legitimate because it was running nearly coterminously with the already existing START-1 regime. Now the problem that the Obama administration faced when it came into office uh, in early 2009 was the, was the START-1 treaty was due to expire in December of 2009. So President Obama, who in a major speech at Prague, committed himself to a far more ambitious long-term goal and that is the president has said that he is a believer in the long term we should have a world free of nuclear weapons. Now there's a lot of controversy of whether that can be accomplished. Can we disinvent uh, this enormously powerful type of weapon which is held not only by the United States and Russia but several other nations, China, the, U- the United Kingdom, the French, the Israelis, uh, the Pakistanis, the Indians, uh, the North Koreans today, and given the efforts currently underway, the Iranians certainly seem embarked upon a path where they hope to acquire nuclear weapons within the next few years. In any case, the president had also has also stated he does not believe that a world free of nuclear weapons can be accomplished within his lifetime. So he's saying that this is a long-term goal that will take some decades if to be accomplished at all. Whatever that long-term objective, the president made clear that he did want to engage Russia on negotiating a new treaty, a START follow-on treaty, what eventually became known as the New START Treaty. And I was uh, fortunate enough, I, I had served for eight years as an Assistant Secretary of Defense under the Clinton administration, and I was out working in the private consulting business with Booz Allen Hamilton, And many of the people that worked for me had come back into the administration, uh, the new Obama administration, and they asked me if I would come and be the Secretary of Defense's representative and the the DOD lead figure and the deputy head of the negotiating team for what became known as the New START Treaty. Uh, We first began to discuss the broad approach to how we wanted to proceed, Uh, with the Russians in Rome in late April 
uh, we went to Moscow and began really the process of formal negotiation uh, in the middle of May. Uh, then we moved on into Geneva. Uh, a tradition had emerged as early as the SALT II tra- negotiations beginning in 1973 to negotiate most of these treaties in Geneva. Uh, from the very start, even in SALT I, there was an agreement, let's do it on neutral ground. We're not going to do it in Moscow, we're not going to do it in Washington. And remember I said they, they alternated between Helsinki and Vienna. Vienna turned out then to be sort of the capital for negotiating conventional arms arrangements all through the 70s, 80s, and on up to the present. So it was kind of ruled out. Helsinki sort of fell off the the map on that issue. And Geneva emerged as a place where there were missions. There's not ambassadors because that's embassies there because it's not the capital of Switzerland. But from the old League of Nations and now the United Nations, there's a lot of international political negotiation presence and representation. And so we began to do our talks in Geneva in the midsummer. And then by September, we actually began to write the treaty itself. The treaty is pretty short, only 17 pages long. The protocol, uh, the lion's share of which is in the inspection activities area, this business about how to set up and conduct these inspections of various types, uh, is more like 80-some pages, and the protocol itself runs like 180 pages total. And then there are annexes that also run about 180 pages. We had to negotiate every troublesome word of those documents, and we really did it, it turned out, in record time. Uh, our job, we did, not, we did not meet our objective. The objective had been to try to have the new treaty negotiated by the time the old treaty expired on the 5th of December uh, of 2009. We made a hard run at that, but we were we were not there. I remember we made another run for two weeks later because the two presidents, Medvedev and Obama, were to meet on the on a, the climate change summit in Copenhagen on the 19th of December. We didn't make that one either. We broke for Christmas, came back together in the latter part of, June, of January, and did make a trip to Moscow to try to break the back on a couple of tough issues. Interestingly, when we did that in late January uh, of 2010, we actually went to the Ministry of Defense because most of the issues we knew where the resistance was in Russia was in the Ministry of Defense. And so we had a, a group led by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mullen, and he met with his uniform counterpart, General Makarov, the Chief of the General Staff, And we did, in fact, break the back of a couple of tough issues. And we were able to then go back to Geneva, clean it up. The two presidents signed the treaty in early April of last year, uh, a little less than a year ago. So we got the whole thing negotiated and signed in less than a year, in a sense, because we had those first exploratory discussions in late April. Well, that was only round one. Round two, we had to come back and try to convince the United States Senate to ratify the treaty. Most earlier arms control treaties have been ratified. This is, of course, the right of the Senate. Not the, the House doesn't play a role in this for the ratification of any international treaties by the so-called advice and consent of the Senate on ratification. Most of the previous strategic arms control treaties had been passed like 90-something to, to 5 or to 6 
this one, it was clear from the outset, was not going to enjoy such widespread support. The Democrats, as we started this, of course, had a majority in the Senate. It was They had 60. Uh, then with the death of uh, Senator Kennedy and the election of uh, Senator Brown, it became 59. Uh, and, of course, there was the prospect of the midterm elections, and even before they were held, it was fairly clear what direction those mid-course elections were likely to go. Um, I won't go into the whole story here. I'll be happy in the question and answer. Uh, let me just give you some relevant uh, facts. Um, there were probably 20 hearings in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee, mostly Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Foreign Relations has the lead for treaties uh, for that, that international political side. But because it's about the security of the United States, Senate Armed Services also held hearings. Hearings at the highest level, that is Secretary Clinton, Secretary Gates, uh, Admiral Mullen uh, would testify. Uh, next level uh, officials testified. Uh, Rose Gottemuller, uh, Assistant Secretary of State who led our delegation, and I testified on four different occasions to these committees. Uh, in the manner in which the, the Senate does its business for most everything, once it holds hearings, there's always a right at the end of the hearing, the, the chairman or the presiding figure will say, members have 48 hours to submit questions for the record. In other words, they have a turn, if they're present, in order to directly have a dialogue with the, with the witnesses. But they also have an opportunity to submit questions for answers. Those questions are usually written by their staff, uh, often in considerable detail. We had the privilege of answering over a thousand questions for the record. And you had to be careful. They had to be coordinated among defense and state and the National Security Council staff, and in some cases the Department of Energy, uh, because energy is, takes care of the nuclear weapons complex, the one that keeps our nuclear weapons capable of, of doing what they would need to do were they ever used. In any case, we got through all that. Uh, it culminated in the lame duck session after the election, after the shellacking, as the president described it, uh, that the administration of the Democrats took in general in the midterm elections. Uh, it was a close-run thing. It was a hard, tough battle. Um, I'll, I'll talk a, f- a little bit at closing here on, on my comments and open it to your questions. Um, the main issues that had emerged, missile defense. This wasn't a treaty about missile defense. The Bush administration, Bush II, abandoned the ABM treaty. ABM treaty had indefinite uh, duration. Uh, But because the Bush administration wanted to move ahead with missile defenses not directed toward Russia, but directed toward emerging missile capabilities of North Korea and Iran, a missile defense, by the way, that the Clinton administration also agreed in and was heading toward deployment, uh, we in the latter stages of the Clinton administration had actually engaged the Russians on the possibility of revising the ABM treaty to allow the defenses that we have deployed, and even larger ones than we've deployed to date, um, and getting uh, a a start three with ratcheted down numbers. But in any case, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I want to give you the the statistics on on the new START treaty. Uh, The overall ceiling on weapons 
is 1,550. Okay, down from 2,200. Again, down from 11 to 12,000. The number on deployed delivery vehicles uh, is 700, down from the 1,600 under Start 1. And I'm not sure what the number was under Start 2. It might have been 1,200 or so, but down dramatically. There's also a third limit on both deployed and non-deployed launchers of ICBMs, SLBMs, and also on heavy bombers, which is 800. That's a more esoteric limit. But you get a sense again. We were way up here in the 11 to 12,000. We're now down to 1550. We were up at over 2,000 delivery vehicles. We're now down to 700. It's it's a major accomplishment. The treaty runs for 10 years. both sides eventually, the, the Senate did ratify the treaty just before Christmas. The Russian would have done so within a week or so, but it had, ran into their Christmas New Year's holiday. They celebrate both old and new New Year's, so they get about three weeks there where we can, we can only squeeze out a week or so. So they didn't come back to do their work until the latter part of January, but they did pass it on the 26th of January. And the instruments of ratification were exchanged in Munich uh, on the 5th of February. The treaty has entered into force. It will uh, be in force for 10 years. It can be extended for an additional five years by mutual agreement, or it can be superseded by a follow-on treaty, should should the two sides decide to go in and, and do that. Those new ceilings must be reached within seven years after entry into force. So that means in February 2018, you must be down to the new ceilings. The inspections begin almost immediately. They begin 60 days after entry into force. So the inspections will begin uh, in the early part of April. And the exchange of data, as I said, which is so important, happens a month and a half after entry into force. So that will happen actually uh, in 45 days after the 5th of uh, February, so in the latter part uh, of March. Yes. Uh, What were the main issues about the treaty? (coughs) Missile defense. Missile defense, of course, has been a controversial issue generally between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, maybe forever in the last several decades, but particularly since uh, President Reagan had his uh, very great enthusiasm for the Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars. President Reagan was of the uh, belief, perhaps just the faith, uh, that one could escape from mutual assured destruction, that mutual stalemate of deterrent second strike forces, by comprehensive defenses, defenses that were so good that neither side could penetrate them. Uh, most technical people believe that you can't erect defenses that good. It's one thing to think you can perhaps knock down a handful of relatively primitive North Korean or Iranian missiles. It's quite another thing to knock down the hundreds of reentry vehicles and the sophisticated decoys uh, that both the United States and the Soviet Union or now Russia could bring to bear. So uh, in the end, the the Strategic Defense Initiative, popularly known as Star Wars, uh, never was adopted. But there are still there's there's still a sort of yearning, particularly in the in Republican circles, uh, to make sure that defenses are as unconstrained as possible. 
and there was some belief that in the in the context of negotiating this uh, treaty on reducing strategic offensive arms, that we had done too much on missile defenses. Missile defenses figured in the treaty in three different ways. Number one, in the preamble, it stated the fact of life that there is an intrinsic relationship between strategic offense and defense. In other words, if you're trying to maintain the ability to retaliate with effect, if the other guy has a strong defense, he attacks you first and draws down your force by getting systems before they can launch, and then he has a substantial defense that might deny him the assured retaliatory capability. I think that's as uh, former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger uh, testified. I'd love to do an imitation of Dr. Kissinger, but I'd never, I'd never pull it off. But he's, he said that this idea that offense and defense are linked to each other is simply a fact of life. I mean, this was that. It's in the preamble. It doesn't say anything other than make the observation. Now, the Russians wanted it in there, and we thought it was not that harmful. It is reality. We put it in there. There is a section of the treaty where there is a constraint. It says that you can't convert ICBM silos, those silos that house the intercontinental range fixed ballistic missiles, in order to hold interceptors for missile defense. We did convert a few ICBM silos at Vandenberg Air Force Base, test silos, to house interceptors. We have no intention of doing any more. We now know how to build and mass produce uh, different kinds of silos for interceptors. They're the ones we have in it where we have 26 interceptors located at Fort Greeley in Alaska. And the head of the Missile Defense Agency testified if we want to build more interceptors and put them into silos, it's half as expensive and much more efficient to put it in specially tailored silos. We do not want to intermix interceptors with our silo-based ICBMs in the great Midwest, in North Dakota and Montana and Wyoming. Uh, among other things, if one of those launched, the Russians might confuse the launch of, a, of an interceptor with the launch of a missile heading their way, and that would not be good. Uh, so there was a constraint in the treaty. By the way, it, it also says you can't take interceptor silos and convert them to put ICBMs in them. Wouldn't make any damn sense anyway. Uh, so there was a constraint, and we took a lot of flack for that. Why did you put any constraint, even if it's relatively meaningless, truly meaningless? At the end of the, the treaty, when we were getting the treaty, uh, I mean, at the time of signature, there always often are unilateral statements. The Russians made a unilateral statement. They said, if you expand your missile defenses, you the United States, quantitatively and qualitatively, in a way that endangers our strategic nuclear forces, we will consider withdrawing from the treaty. My point is, no kidding. I mean, that's clearly their position. It's a unilateral statement. It has no, the United States did not sign up to it. The United States made a statement in return and said, we intend to continue. We build our defenses against third parties. We intend to improve them qualitatively and quantitatively, but they do not and will not threaten your deterrent. Observations on both sides. Despite that, this, this was one of the issues. There was some issue over the adequacy of the verification, etc. Let me close with the comments about where do we go from here. 
By the way, I don't know, what was tougher, working with the Senate or working with the Russians? <laughs> it was a close-run thing. Um, in, during ratification, uh, one of the points that uh, was brought out and added to the resolution of ratification that comes out of the Senate Armed Services Committee, I'm sorry, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and then is um, modified by the Senate acting on the floor as a whole, is a provision that says the United States, the, the administration was instructed by the Senate to seek to enter negotiations with Russia within one year about tactical nuclear weapons. Remember way back when, when I talked about the size of arsenals at the height of the Cold War, I said there were literally 20,000 tactical nuclear weapons on each side. And these may mean weapons that can be delivered by artillery shells, by mines, by anti-submarine warfare means, by torpedoes. In the Russian case, their, their ABM anti-ballistic missile system around Moscow has nuclear warheads. Seems like you might destroy the city to save it. Uh, in any case, uh, these tactical nuclear weapons have never been the subject of negotiations. Uh, and and, and by the way, when the SORT Treaty or the Moscow Treaty was approved in 2002, among the senators who belabored the Republican administration was one Senator Biden, now the vice president, who said, why don't you put tactical nuclear weapons into the next treaty? We didn't put them into New START basically because we had that time pressure. We were trying to get a treaty done within a year with even less than a year, there was no way tactical nuclear weapons will be an extremely sticky proposition. The reason for that is as follows. Beginning in the early 1990s, both sides have drawn down their tactical nuclear weapon stocks dramatically. The United States, extremely dramatically. We now have only several hundred tactical nuclear weapons. The Russians have several thousand but still a lot less than 20,000. The Russians today view themselves as their military conventional capabilities are pretty lousy. This is hard for, for older people in this audience who remember the, the image of the, of the Russian army, the Red Army, uh, and the real Red Army that had 5 million men under arms uh, in the early 1980s. They now have 800,000 men under arms, and the arms ain't so good. And the soldiers aren't very good. They're conscripts. They're not well-trained. They don't stay in long enough. So the Russians believe today that tactical nuclear weapons are their compensation for conventional weakness. When they look at NATO or when they look at China, they see countries which, with, with what they believe are superior conventional theater forces. So they have been quite outspoken about this in public, that they find tactical nuclear weapons as the great equalizer. So given their reliance on tactical nuclear weapons, there's no prospect they're going to zero. Now can we work out a deal? The, what we've laid down as the general guidelines for the next round of negotiations, which are unlikely as real negotiations, to begin, I think, even within this term of the Obama administration. There will be explorations of the general concepts, but detailed negotiations 
are not likely to let the lead, not during this year at all, and maybe at the earliest in the latter stages of 2012, but even that's not clear. But the desire would be to have to include both strategic and tactical, both deployed and non-deployed, those that are in storage. That will raise a whole new challenge. We've never had the nuclear weapons themselves, particularly the ones in storage, subject to limitation. So this would be a new territory. And it would mean if you have quantitative limits on this, that you almost certainly will need to inspect those storage areas, probably with a sampling kind of approach, as many have suggested. So for now, what we face is the, the challenge of implementation, implementing the new START treaty, getting started literally over these next couple of months and doing it for 10 years, probably well, undoubtedly exploring ideas uh, of the next uh, treaty and maybe beginning, the, I sort of correct myself, maybe beginning to negotiate as early as sometime in 2012, but this is likely to be a lengthy negotiation uh, more like some of the earlier ones which ran for three to four years or more before they yielded uh, real success. One last thing we are doing, I said missile defense is an area of controversy. Uh, interestingly, we are embarked upon some cooperative activity with Russia on missile defense, particularly between NATO and Russia. Uh, the Russians took up an offer from NATO at a NATO summit that was held in Lisbon last November. And they, there is the ex, NATO committed itself for the first time to build a collective missile defense, 95% of which will be provided by the Americans. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a NATO collective venture. The Russians were offered the chance to, to then have a cooperative NATO-Russia missile defense for Europe, the European Russia and the rest of Europe. They said, rather surprisingly, and surprisingly enthusiastically, we want to do that. And we're now engaged in some intense discussions, bilaterally and multilaterally, NATO to Russia, about missile defense cooperation. Given the sensitivity and the opposition to any constraints on missile defense, there will be no treaty with constraints on missile defense. So the way we may neutralize the missile defense issue in the U.S.-Russian dialogue, if you will, is by, in fact, if we have successful cooperation. And there are talks on that almost on a weekly basis uh, right now between the United States and Russia and between NATO and Russia as we're trying to get down to some I mean, they've put a, an idea on the table. We didn't like it very much. We put an idea on the table. They weren't exactly convinced it was the right answer either, and we're trying to find a mutual ground. Senators, particularly senators from the right, are watching all this like hawks and with, uh, with considerable suspicion. So it will make for interesting times. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to answer your question. I know the time is, we're hitting the bewitching hour of 1 o'clock, and I understand if anybody needs to get up and leave. I think just because there's a big crowd here, we'll start with people.
I'll be happy to answer questions as long as you want to pose them. Go ahead. Senator Kyle made as a condition of ratification a modernization of our nuclear arsenal. I wonder if you could talk a little bit. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. I, I only I covered too much as it was. Uh, another big issue that came up in ratification, and, and he, the point has been made very clearly, was the question of the U.S. Uh, nuclear weapons complex or nuclear weapons enterprise, I like to call it these days. It's the laboratories, it's the facilities that are used literally to manufacture and sustain and life extend our nuclear weapons. If we're going to have strategic nuclear forces and tactical forces and they're going to you know, pose a credible threat, uh, the nuclear weapons better be able to uh, be used, better be effective. It, is, it was commonly agreed that the spending on that complex had been done poorly and been under-invested, particularly in, in, uh, in the recent Bush administration, among others. Uh, Senator Kyle held out the prospect of his support for the treaty. That proved evanescent. Uh, if, they were, if, the, if the administration would commit uh, to a more robust program to modernize, sustain, uh, update the nuclear weapons complex, which is spread across many states. And by the way, various senators with pieces of that in their state, this became a litmus test on their being willing to possibly support the treaty. Uh, there was extensive bargaining done at the very highest levels uh, between Kyle and the leadership of the administration. At one point, a report that was required by the Congress was brought out, the so-called Section 1251 report, because it came from a section of the Defense Authorization Act. It pledged to, to, to take what was a $70 billion investment over 10 years and to ratchet it up to $80 billion. Now, there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in this because this administration cannot commit future administrations. I mean, if the Obama administration goes out after 2012 or even if it lasts to 2016, it won't last till what was then 2010 to 2020. So, so this is sort of, I mean, it's a sign of good faith, but it's not binding. But in any case, the 1251 report said 70 billion to 80 billion. Well, the game wasn't over yet. As we got toward the end game in November, December, negotiations continued, and the final offer accepted was 85 billion. So there is greater investment to be made. And this administration, by the way, in the most recent markups by the what is it, something in Energy and Water Subcommittee of the House, with its enthusiasm for budget cutting, uh, offered to cut this year's investment in that area by, by two-thirds. And now they're down to only having cut it in half. Last time I looked, that's a Republican majority in the House that's doing that. Uh, so I don't know what, I mean, Senator Kyle and his friends, I don't know what they can do in the sense if the administration went up in good faith and asked for X dollars consistent with the $85 billion over the 10 years, but if the Congress itself chooses to appropriate a great deal less, uh, that's the way it's going to turn out. But that was one of the, the other major piece of the dialogue and, the, and bargaining, quite frankly, internal bargaining was this question of uh, investment in the, in the nuclear weapons complex. The chances that, that the 85 will come in this kind of fiscal austerity mood, I think we've already seen clear evidence of how difficult that's going to be. Is there a number 
below which or at which we should begin to think there's a prospect of getting past mutual assurance discussion? Um, let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, the next negotiation, I think there's one more purely U.S.-Russian negotiation in, uh, logically in the works. And in the central strategic area, I think that would ratchet the number down from 1550 warheads, excuse me, down to maybe 1,000. So that's another number, okay? That's a long way from not having mutually assured destruction. I don't know. I mean, if you have just 10 weapons, that could be enough for mutually assured destruction in the minds of some. I mean, there's, a t- there's lots of different calculations. First, what do you hold at risk? What do you threaten to strike? How much is enough? And then in the calculation, what if he attacks me? How many survive? If he's got defense, even modest defense, uh, what is it? What is the number? I, can, I mean, people do those exchange calculations all the time. There was a time at the height of the Cold War when we both sort of convinced ourselves about the nature of the of what we wanted to hold at risk, and we had very ambitious objectives. I mean, literally thousands of targets. Clearly, when we're down to saying we need only 1550, we've recalibrated how much, what we have to hold at risk. Uh, the Strategic Command did an analysis under what was called the Nuclear Posture Review, a major review done at the outset of an administration. This has become a tradition now. It was done at the beginning of the Clinton administration, at the beginning of Bush II, and now the beginning of the Obama administration, the the Nuclear Posture Review, which in Washington, of course, must be known by its acronym of NPR. It was not National Public Radio. Uh, In any case, they did an analysis and used the existing guidance for for what to hold at risk and came to the conclusion that a number around 1,500 or 1,550 was adequate in light of the character of the forces and our projected nature of those forces. Another piece of ratification, by the way, was a commitment to sustain the delivery systems and even have follow-on delivery systems. That's follow-on submarine, a follow-on ICBM, a follow-on bomber, a follow-on air-launched cruise missile. And by the, by the time we got to the end game of the discussion with the Senate in December, in letter form from the President or the Secretary of Defense were pledges to move ahead in those directions. I don't know what the number is. I mean, the Chinese have satisfied themselves until quite very recently with only about 20 intercontinental range missiles. They are in the process now of adding to that uh, in, in significant numbers. The British and the French have found adequate to their needs uh, numbers in the in the few hundred. Okay, so we have a variety of uh, different versions. I don't know what do the Indians have, the Pakistanis. Usually, in the hundred to a couple hundred are the kind of figures you'll see in the in the unclassified assessments of that. Uh, it's the idea of getting all the way to zero is uh, making that final transition uh, is exceptionally challenging. Also on the numbers question, do <clears throat> you carry around any notion in your mind as to what, what I suppose would be a pretty small number, the fraction of the total defense budget was spent on negotiations, verification, that sort of thing. But then what would really be a much larger number, what share of the total defense budget is spent on maintaining, broadly defined, the nuclear capacity? Oh, gosh. 
I don't have that at my fingertip. Uh, I know I've seen it in the past. Yeah, we did have to do some figures about what does it take to implement START, a new START. Uh, there is a substantial cost of inspections, both hosting and carrying them out. Uh, but uh, And the other costs are really in the conversion and elimination of systems as they come off the, off the books. It, it, it was a couple of billion dollars over the ten, over the ten years of the, of the treaty. Um, the cost of strategic offensive arms, gosh, I probably knew that once, but I don't have it now. It's quite inexpensive until you get to modernization. I mean, the ICBM fields, running them all the time is very inexpensive. I mean, it's all sunk costs. I remember Tom Schelling making that argument in 1978. Uh, and it hadn't changed much. We have fewer of them. We used to have 1,054. Now we have 450 heading to either 400 or 420. We did lay out a, a baseline structure under the re, once the reductions kick in. And we know it's between 400 and 420 of the ICBMs. Again, they're not very expensive to sustain. Uh, there is some modernization going on to make sure the, the motors last and all this, and then there will be the need, if you're going over decades, for a new ICBM. Uh, the submarines are more expensive, but we once had 41. I love the uh, Navy. I'll tell you, 41 for freedom. Uh, we had 41 submarines. We now have only 14, and two of them are in deep overhaul because we've been putting each of them. It's amazing. The Trident submarine came out in the early 80s. They're going to last for over 40 years. And at the 20-year point, they have to go in to get uh, get a new fueling of their reactor, and they do a general overhaul, of the, and they're out of commission for a year and a half to two years. So we've been basically living with a force of 12 as as we would rotate two into into this. They're more expensive. We have double crews, blue and gold crews, to be able to keep them out at sea to, to, to such an extent as we do. The bomber force now is, has been a dual-capable force, that is, nuclear and conventional. And it's gone down. We used to have over 500 B-52s at one point. The last B-52 was added to the force in October of 1962. Uh, so we're keeping those last models of B-52s and we're going down to about 60 of them. We have 20 B-2s and we have, we have about 80-some B-1s, but all the B-1s have been converted to conventional only. So they don't count in this at all. So, uh, and we now, we used to have, goodness gracious, 15 probably uh, Strategic Air Command bomber bases. Today we have five and it'll be down to three when the B-1s at least no longer count as nuclear, though they'll still be in the bomber conventional force. But it's, it's a relic, especially with the two wars going on and all that, the, it's, a, it's got to be a very, it's certainly well under, five, it's under 5% of the budget, I, I would say. Yes, ma'am. Putin becomes president in 12. Do you think that will change the tone or chances of future negotiations or not? I don't think so. Putin, of course, agreed to the SORT treaty. And we were always careful of, we, the man we did business with was Medvedev as president, which you clearly know. Putin is the prime minister. He's not a man without influence. Nobody yet knows whether Putin is, it's not quite as automatic as some think that he wants to be president again. He certainly wants to be a power broker because he wants the, want the presidency. We will see within the next year or so. 
No, Putin actually said positive things. There were times when we worried about him. He said some stuff about him. The Russians really worry about our missile defense. I mean, they really worry that we might expand that mother by a great deal and begin to hold them and begin to hold them at risk. And that, I think, is across Putin, Medvedev, whoever else is is on top. But uh, but Putin, in the end, I mean, it was his party and Medvedev's party that that ran it through the Supreme uh, through both the Federation Council and the State Duma. Uh, so I don't think so. Uh, the real issue is these tactical nuclear issues. It's going to be hard. Uh, the general way, by the way, people, uh, some creative minds, both Russian and American on this matter, unofficial, have said, have an aggregate ceiling, like 3,000 or 2,500, and that's tactical nuclear, strategic nuclear, deployed. Deployed means they're on the delivery vehicles. Non-deployed means they're in storage, you know, usually highly bunkerized, bunkers, with lots of security protection. That so have that overall number and have a sub number for strategic, maybe a sub number on delivery. It's not too hard to conceptualize the agreement. It's not even too hard to, to think through the how you might do the inspections. Uh, the Russians have shown themselves really un, not very enthusiastic about having them, Americans muck about in their nuclear storage sites. Uh, so that's going to be one of the toughest issues. You can't possibly have a ceiling on those weapons and not have inspection. I can certainly tell you that after I had the... I was in charge of the negotiation of all the inspection activities. Uh, and it was a hard slog. And the Russians want no part of, at least at this point, about getting into <laughs> nuclear weapon storage sites. Um, earlier you said there will be no constraints on missile I the there was there was a lot of controversy about this uh, from the from the right wing standpoint from the conservative Republican standpoint they were mad as hell if the words missile defense were ever connected to the treaty okay they didn't like it in the preamble they thought it was unnecessary. Uh, some of their leading lights, uh, Condoleezza Rice, said one of the great things we did is disconnect offensive defense. Uh, sorry, Condi, but that, you know, it's just not true. I mean, you never disconnected it in the Russians' mind. You got away with it in, in a treaty that was that rode the back of another treaty and took the numbers down. But the Russians have this concern, and, it, and for them it's a very real concern. The thing, we in the last analysis put that one in the treaty itself, Article 5, Paragraph 3. I'm not sure I can cite any other article or paragraph, but that one's imprinted in my memory. Uh, article 5, Paragraph 3 was this business about converting launchers. As I made the argument, this thing doesn't make a lot of sense. It made, a, it made limited sense when we did it in Vandenberg. It doesn't make any sense now, but that is a constraint. There is a constraint in the treaty on missile defense, and Senator Kyle and Senator Sessions and many other senators who believe strongly about that matter were mad as hell about it. But also, the, the U.S. decided not to deploy in Eastern Europe, and that seems like a heck of a concession. Well, we did not. That's not true. We changed our deployment in Eastern Europe. There was a third site. This is a theater missile defense capability that was also capable of, of doing the initial shot at a ICBM coming out of Iran. 
we changed the in September of 2009, the president announced the abandonment of the so-called third site, putting two stage ground-based interceptors into Poland and putting an X-band radar into the Czech Republic. He replaced that with, with what is called the European Phase Adaptive Approach. In that approach, by the third and fourth phase, there are interceptors going into Poland, the same place they were going before. There is no radar in the Czech Republic, but there is a radar somewhere down in southeastern Europe facing Iran. Uh, there are also interceptors going into Romania. They are now an adapted version of the sea-based interceptor capability that is currently deployed, the standard missile three. We're putting, uh, excuse me if I use the abbreviations, SM3 block one interceptors are on ships today. Block two interceptors uh, will be added, including in Romania, block 2B. Block, I'm sorry, block 1B. Block 2B and 2A will come in phases in 2018 and 2020. The third site is going to come in in about 2018. So there are interceptor missiles going into Poland. They will be capable of intercepting ICBMs uh, that are on their way from Iran toward the United States. They will not be capable of intercepting Russian ICBMs or SLBMs that are in the wrong place. So again, that seems like a concession. And given that, given that there are deployments planned down the road, as you just stated, I'm curious if we go through with that deployment or those deployments, how would that, number one, impact the treaty, and how would that, too, impact Russian strategic military doctrine? Well, that's what I was, I was trying to say at the very end. Let me just spin it out a little more. The Russians are worried that the European phase adaptive approach in its third and fourth phase, particularly in its fourth phase, now projected for 2020, not that much different than the old plan, which was sort of 2017-18. They worry that those missiles could endanger their strategic deterrent. We have demonstrated to them, given the geographic location, given the velocities of those missiles, that they cannot intercept Russian ICBMs, let alone SLBMs, which are far to the north or out in the broad ocean area. Uh, it is a running gun battle with the Russians on whether they want to believe that. What they then do, they say, but what if you took these things and put them in the Baltic Sea and put them way up near St. Petersburg or put them way up near Sweden? Well, if we put this type of capability far enough to the north, it could, in fact, intercept Russian missiles. But that's not where we're going to put them. Uh, we'll see. I, uh, there is a dialogue of whether this was too great a concession. Uh, you know, we, frankly, we argued strongly that that's not the case. Uh, we're actually getting a European defense capability over the phases, which is much more comprehensive. It didn't have much for Europe in it before. It has a lot for Europe now. It covers all of Europe against Iranian threats by 2018. Before, it was only about defending the United States from Europe. Now it includes that feature in phase four, but it also includes a great deal more.
Yeah, uh, looking at the New START Treaty uh, a little bit more broadly, uh, Ted, what do you think is the sort of balance between the political and military objectives of the New START Treaty, the political ones being to advance the relationship with Russia and the military ones obviously being uh, to reduce weapons? I think it's both and. I mean, there's no doubt that the that the negotiation of this treaty, its successful completion and ratification and entry into force were an important aspect of so-called reset. Uh, of just, I mean, if you don't like that term, just, just the, the state of Ru- uh, Russian-American relations. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, my wife and I went to Russia just a few weeks ago to participate in a, in an, in, in a, they call track two or track one and a half, meaning a not fully official, a semi-official sort of discussion of strategic stability issues. And my wife challenged me on, you know, why can't we be less suspicious of Russia? I mean, think about the reversals of state relations. The United States and Germany, the United States and Japan, of the, of the end of World War II, and, and by the middle of the 50s, a decade later, we were allies. Now, that tended to be driven by a third threat, which was, in fact, the Soviet Union. Uh, the United States and Vietnam, we fought a terrible war with Vietnam. I mean, we lost lots of people. They lost many times more than we did. Uh, and yet, you know, we have normalized relations with Vietnam, and thanks now to some of the uh, assertive foreign policy behavior of the Chinese, who have never been great friends of the Vietnamese, uh, the Vietnamese are much more contemplating, you know, a relationship with us. Are we there with Russia? Not by any means. But do we have to stay? I mean, you know, those of us that grew up and lived through the Cold War, it was just my wife kind of challenged me to, to, to at least for a moment abandon that Cold War mindset and at least open one's mind to a relationship with a, with a different Russia. It's a, it's a Russia that's no paragon of of democratic values by any means. Matter of fact, they've slipped backwards badly in terms of their domestic political behavior vis-a-vis the critics of the regime and the ability to have a truly multi-party system and so forth. Uh, nevertheless, I, I, I'm sorry for that sort of diversion, uh, but on the whole, even if we take it that, that we have many differences uh, the administration thinks that, you know, as they sort of take stock after just a little over two years, uh, they have, we have cooperated a great deal. The Russians have cooperated on the transit of materials through Russia, both on air and on rail, in order to support the, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, we've cooperated on, the, on sanctions against Iran. The Russians have grudgingly come to, I think, understand that Iran does pose some threat to them. They don't see it at all as the same way that we do. But uh, arms control negotiations always had both faces. One, they had a specific strategic utility vis-a-vis deterrence, level of the arms race, so-called first strike stability, no, no incentive for either side to introduce the use of nuclear weapons arms race stability to at least dampen and and channel the arms competition. Those uh, aspects are still present and the the role as as an important aspect, not quite the flagship it was, I think, in the Cold War, but still the most prominent uh, 
achievement, I would say, in Russian-American relations in the last decade. Yes. Uh, I like the way your wife thinks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd like to ask you some a different question. You mentioned the extreme reduction in tactical nuclear weapons on both sides. That has been completed without agreement. And certainly France has gotten rid of two-thirds of its weapons, again, without agreement. Is it possible it would actually be less strategic weapons if the salt talks didn't, the star talks didn't exist? I don't think that you don't have to guarantee anything. You simply sort of play against the other side. You get rid of them if you find you made a mistake. You can always rebuild. So consequently, you're more likely to get rid of them since you don't have to worry about a real ceiling that's agreed to. Um, I don't. I don't tend to agree with that. I mean, I think the two sides did recognize that they had. They'd sort of run amok in the in the total numbers. I mean, you know, it was roughly thirty thousand on both sides seemed a bit extreme, and they were able to combine what was called the presidential nuclear initiatives, which were uh, sort of uh, reciprocal pledges uh, by uh, President Bush, uh, first with Gorbachev and then with Yeltsin, right at the at the break point there between the breakup of the Soviet Union and Yeltsin coming to power as the president of Russia. Um, and that was good. Uh, but reciprocal unilateral at this point, it's not that clear. I think in this uh, in this area where we've gotten down to these numbers, we've come from the ten to 12,000 down to the, the, to the 2,000 and less than 2,000. I think it's easier to do it with the negotiation and I think it's ironic because uh, on one hand, uh, I mean, I clearly have served in democratic administrations and have that point of view. I got a kick out of the fact that uh, some of the people that served during during Bush too and didn't seem to have a very high standard about inspections and that, they beat the living tar out of me and others about how inadequate your inspection regime is when you really had to come forward with a treaty. I think, I, I think that we've now pioneered the use of inspections in ways that are very useful. They are sampling inspections. They're not comprehensive. But the threat of the sampling and the vulnerability of all the bases to such inspection on short notice, I think it's a very critical part of being able to get down further. I mean, we'll never know the other hypothesis. Is there a tendency to hang on to the weapons so you can use them as bargaining chips? We didn't do... I'll give you an example that we didn't do that. Uh, in the nuclear posture review, the, uh, one of our tactical nuclear weapons was the nuclear-armed Tomahawk uh, land attack cruise missile, TLAMN, as is known. The administration, the Navy, was wanted to get it off the books, and the administration agreed to get rid of TLAMN and not keep it around as a bargaining chip for the for the next negotiation. So, I, I mean, I you will, it's hard to prove a negative here, just that it wouldn't have wor- worked a different way. I think we've been able to, to use both approaches uh, to, to bring us a long way back from, the, from the, the excess, to put it mildly, that we accumulated in the Cold War. I think we have time for one more. One, if there's one last question, we have time. Thanks. Uh, I wondered about the conversion and elimination process you mentioned. How prominently did that oversight of that enter into your negotiation on inspections? And in general, are you satisfied with our popular fears that you know they're old, spent, not spent, but you know decommissioned nuclear material are being sold on secondary markets? So just well, again, see, we don't do anything about the weapons. We're doing it about the delivery systems. We're doing it about launchers and missiles, but not the nuclear weapons. And that's what, and that's, there's no requirement that the weapons be destroyed. And I didn't want to, you know, that's, that's just a fact. 
we have a we have some thousands of weapons awaiting dis- dismantlement today. And we announced our sort of active stockpile for the first time ever of 5,113. And that was announced in the fall of 2009, 2010, I think 2010. Um, conversion or elimination is interesting stuff. I mean, we there were some provisions in, in START 1, the original START, that had us going to partic- We were particularly concerned about mobile missiles and their launchers. And the Russians had them and we didn't. We had plans to have them. It was more of a talk and we never followed through on it. I don't think our politics would allow us wandering around missiles in the, certainly in the railroads, which the Russians had a system that did that. Even they got rid of that one, thank God. Um, but they still have land mobile systems. We used to go watch them dismantle the launcher and our inspection team might be there for three weeks watching them cut this piece and cut that piece. We simplified it and said, look, if we can take a look at the thing when it's done. And and then we there was quite a controversy uh, on how many and how often and all this. And we ended up with a compromise. Uh, and it's, it's, it's too complicated to get into. Uh, they were worried about conversion of our B-1 bombers. We never we showed them the after, but never the before. So we're going to have an exhibition within the next uh, month, in which we finally show them this is where it was, this is what it turns into, this is why it can't carry a nuclear weapon, which I think is long overdue. But uh, conversion, they've never done any conversion. We've done conversion, primarily conversion of bombers from nuclear to nuclear and conventional to conventional only. Uh, elimination both sides do some eliminations we still use national technical means we just say that things have to be displayed in the open for a certain amount of period you know, a certain period by the way one of the interesting things our last point I make uh, in the mobiles we used to have for mobile launchers we had a unique identifier a number okay and it would be so you could track them by tail number basically the Russians one of their bargaining approaches was they said we got mobiles and you don't. This is mobile land-based systems. We both have mobile submarines or mobile bombers, but mobile land-based systems. And you had all this unique stuff for mobiles. We're not putting up with any of that anymore. And one of the things they said, you had these unique identifiers on mobiles. They said, if they were applied to everything, we could live with them. We said, fine, let's apply them to everything. So we did. And I think that was a net gain. Because now you can track by serial number the submarine launch missiles, the, the uh, intercontinental range missiles, and the bombers. Most bombers have tail numbers anyway. Uh, but now they're in the notifications, they're in the inspections, and basically you can keep track of the life cycle. You see it. We have a deal that when new, new solid-fueled missiles come into, the, come into the system, there has to be a notification 48 hours in advance that they're leaving the assembly plant. And then wherever they arrive, within five days after they arrive at the at the flight test center, at our operational base, at storage area, you got to get a notification. Now they're subject to inspection. You can basically track that missile or that launcher through its through its entire life cycle. So I think that's an important addition. Thank you very much.
they're either wrong. Remember, they go so, north. Yeah, yeah, they know the Indian Hill ground as well. Yeah. But the Great Circle ground was way to the north. So what was the point of the They weren't about Russia. They were about Iran. Okay. They're on the road to That's no intersection. They put them there to bring a lot of Russia. They're about They even are limited to what they stop Iran from doing because of Iran being further east. They can get away from it and still hit the Western